Good morning. <laughs> My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 33, 18, verses 34 uh, through 34, verse 8. Uh, we're going to be in this passage uh, for two weeks. We're going to hit it from two different angles. I was in it. The original intent was to make this one sermon, and then it was just like, nah, there's no way. Too, too much. So we're going to look at this from two different angles this morning. So you can be on page 42 in the Blue Bibles around you. Uh, the text will also be on uh, the screen. You can follow along uh, with us. So we uh, pastors just got back from our pastor's retreat. Um, so the four elders, four pastors in our church, plus our pastor and elder in training, Isaac, uh, we all went up to Lake Greenwood. Greenwood. We do this once a year. We get away. It's, uh, we call it 100% fun, 100% work. It really shouldn't be called a retreat because I think retreat implies like getting away to rest, um, which it is not that. But um, we spend a lot of time praying and debating, and, and it's been formative in how our, uh, in shaping kind of the future of our church. And it's also a lot of fun. We get to hang out together. It's the one time a year we get to have some fun together. One of the ways that we do this is we have a meal competition. Um, so we divide up teams every year. Uh, there's, this year it was Raz, Chet, and myself, and Isaac and Matt. And you have a breakfast and a lunch and a dinner. And the goal is to execute the best set of three meals. And every year it's come down to basically who takes two of the three. Uh, and, you know, I'm not here to boast or brag, but we did win. Uh, and that's two years in a row for me, which is nice because I was on a three-year losing streak up until a few years ago. But uh, we made a lunch where we did uh, basically Cantina 76-style tacos, all right? So each, you know, Raz, Chet, myself, each took a taco. We owned that taco as a part of the lunch. So Chet made a delicious uh, fried fish taco that was the best Raz made a carne asada taco, which lost us the round. I'm not bitter about it. I'm fine. We could have had a sweep. Would have been two years in a row, but that's fine. I made this Nashville hot chicken taco. And, uh, and I was, you know, I brought Chet in because I was like, we need, to, we need to make sure the flavor profile on this taco is money. Like, we got to make sure I, won't, I don't want it to just be all overwhelming on the front end, and then that's all you can taste. I want some heat and some flavor on the front end. I want you to bite into it. And we were messing with the flavor profile to make sure that happens. I want you, once you swallow it, the aftertaste to just be delightful, so much so that as you continue to, to chew on this, you want more of it. And I stuck the landing. It was great. But that's a little bit of what Moses has been experiencing as he's walked with God from Oreb, from Mount Horeb up until now. That he's gotten to taste the Lord a little bit, got to, got to see who he is, experience him. From Oreb all the way to his, uh, the, the, the ten plagues and experiencing God. And we saw last week a little bit that he was, there was a temporary tent of meeting where he got to meet with God. He met with him, and he went into the cloud at Mount Sinai. There's all these instances where Moses has gotten to experience more and more of God. And what we get to today is this bold request from Moses, who wants more? Because as he's experienced our God, he wants more of him. And this bold request is what we're going to look at today. 
And not just the request itself, but how God responds to this bold request to see the glory of God. And we're going to get to see how wonderful our God is. The richness of his character and his glory and his goodness and what that means for us as Christians looking at this. So let me pray and we'll walk through this text together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves, redeems, sets us apart to be a people who regularly get to taste and see that you are good. Who get to see how wonderful you are and the songs that we just sang and the scriptures that were read and now in this text that we get to walk through together, Lord, may you open our hearts, our eyes, and our minds to experience you, that we may respond in faith and in repentance and in worship and ultimately delighting in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we pick up basically right where Chet left off last week. So Chet walked us through uh, that after the golden calf incident, so after the people reject God for a golden calf instead and the tablets are broken, and the covenant is shattered, there's this wondering what's going to happen next. And what Chet walked us through last week is God saying, you can go to the promised land. I will make good on this. You will get to the promised land. I'm just not going to be there. So you can have the land of, that's flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going to be there. And Moses just, he just responds says, I know where, where you are is where we're going to be. If you're in the wilderness, we'll be in the wilderness. We're not going to the promised land without you, God. It's a wonderful response. And we pick up right in that same, this is the next part of the interaction in verse 18. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now, as I said earlier, Moses has experienced some of the presence of God and some of his glory since he was called at Mount Horeb, which when you look at the two kind of interactions at Mount Horeb, he's fearfully kind of, oh, 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 with God. And now he's kind of boldly walking. It's just a really cool difference in how he's experienced God and he's wanting more of him. But it, at, the, at Mount Horeb, as he's walked with them through the plagues, as they exit Egypt and the temporary tent of meeting that we saw last week, as he's gotten to experience God over and over and over again, as they went, as he went into the cloud at Mount Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments, even in Exodus 24, when, they, when Moses and the elders have a meal at the feet of God in his presence on the mount, he's gotten to experience God more and more and more. And now he just says, show me your glory. It's a profound request. It's, it's a big deal. He has not experienced this, what, what he's asking for here, he has not experienced yet. Now, we'll get into next week more of what's happening in that request. But there's really two ways of reading this request. One is that he's asking this as a representative of the people of God, which he is. He's asking this on behalf of Israel as their representative. The other aspect that you could look at this is, is say that this is a personal request from Moses. So show me, us, as a representative of your people, your glory. Or... God, show me personally your glory. Now, theologians and Bible nerds debate 
back and forth which one it is. And I would argue that I think both of them are true. There's no way you can hear Moses' request disconnected from that he's a representative of the people of God. So when he's saying, show me your glory, he's asking for a sign here. There's no, right, up until this point, the covenant has not, has not been restored. Okay, the people are still in rebellion, and God is, he's not brought wrath on them fully, but he has not restored the covenant yet. And there's a little bit of him asking on behalf of the people of God, give us a sign, show me your glory. Are we good, God? So there's that aspect that, that absolutely is a part of this. But I don't think that's all that there is. I think there's another aspect of this that as both a representative of God, of, of the people to God and himself, that he's saying, God, show, show me your glory. Because he doesn't say show us your glory. Show me your glory. That he wants to know more of God personally. However, that's a big request. That's a huge jump from the interactions that he's had with God to show me who you are and your glory. That's a big leap. One of my favorite shows on YouTube, which me presenting that makes it seem like I watch a lot of shows on YouTube. One of the only shows I watch on YouTube, and it happens to also be my favorite, is a show called Hot Ones. All right? And this show, it's very simple. It's a guy interviewing celebrities while they eat hot wings. That's it. They eat 10 different hot wings. And the first wing is a milder sauce, and it gets progressively more intense as it goes along. And the brilliance of it is that celebrities, most of the time when they do interviews, they're fake. They're just not being themselves. And I get that. If, you, if I had to be interviewed all the time, I also probably would be fake. I think I would be tired. I think I would just tell you what you wanted to hear. I would probably say all kinds of things. So a lot of times when you hear these interviews, they're just, they're, they're acting, they're faking their way through it. But the brilliance of this show is that as they're eating these hot wings, like their guard is let down. <laughs> as their mouth is on fire, like they, they just start talking freely. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty incredible concept. But the first wing is mild. Towards the end, they're scalding, all right? And the eighth wing is the same sauce every time. It's called the bomb, okay? Now, it's technically not the hottest sauce. It's not on the Scoville level the hottest sauce of the 10, but by testimony of people, it is the hottest sauce. Like every celebrity who eats it, they're just like, this is like eating battery acid. It scalds them. And if you just want to spend 10 minutes watching compilations of like Shaq and Jennifer Lawrence and all these celebrities just like crying and losing it and melting and falling apart and drinking milk because it's burning their lips and their tongue and their throat and their stomach, it's worth it. But they don't jump from one to eight, y'all. That's not how that works. They progressively build their way up to it. And Moses has had like wing one, wing two level experiences with God. He's gotten to experience God and his presence in some pretty profound and amazing ways. But what he just asked for was next level, okay? What he just asked for is the bomb level experience with God. And he doesn't know what he's asking fully. Otherwise, he would have asked it. And we don't have time to get into that this week. But if he does experience the glory of God and what he's asking, he'll die. Because he can't see the glory of God as a sinner and live. But he's asking for this unbelievably profound experience with God. Show me your glory. And this is how God responds. Verse 19. And he said, 
says the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, a couple things here. He says, show me your glory. And then God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. So goodness and glory are the same here in how God is described about to describe himself. And that's important because for us, glory is a very difficult concept to imagine. It just is. It's an American. It's a Western. It's just glory is just not something we, we think through well biblically. We have ideas of it. They're just not the most biblical ideas. Uh, there's a movie that came out a few months ago called Air. Uh, it's a sports movie. It's about how uh, Nike landed Michael Jordan and his shoe contract. Um, so if you like sports movies and you like NBA basketball like I do, it's right up your alley. So 10 of you will love it. All right. So in air, the whole bit, the whole, what's about is they're trying to land Michael Jordan. Nike can't land Michael Jordan on their own because at that point, they're a cute little running shoe company. They're not cool at all. In fact, Adidas was the favorite to land Michael Jordan at the time because Adidas was the shoe at the time. But they do this whole build up, like this whole storyline of how they actually get to finally have an interview. They get to sit down with Michael and they make their pitch. The pitch isn't going well. They're, they're, they're blowing it. Michael Jordan's not interested at all. And then, in the most pinnacle moment of the movie, Matt Damon goes off script, who's the main character. And he just makes this appeal to Michael Jordan. He gives this speech. And then as the speech is going, there's this montage highlights of all of Michael Jordan's highlights in basketball. And the music's building up, and he says this to Michael Jordan, a shoe is just a shoe until someone steps into it. Then it has meaning. The rest of us just want a chance to touch that greatness. We need you in those shoes, not so that you have meaning in your life, so that we have meaning in ours. And it's a little ridiculous because we're talking about a shoe and a basketball player. <laughs> It's worship, y'all. It's like, so we, have, we need meaning in our lives so that you can be in these shoes. Now, what he's capturing there is glory, okay? That's what he's going for. Is that we, want to, we, want to, we just want to be able to touch your glory, Michael. And it's showing all of his best moments in basketball as this speech is going on. Now, the reason this speech, as ridiculous and over the top as it is, the reason it even makes sense it's because Michael Jordan is arguably the best basketball player that has ever lived. One of the best athletes that's ever lived. And I know some of you are big LeBron fans, and you're like, no, but wait. Listen, I'm not here to argue that. I don't like LeBron or Michael Jordan, to be honest. You can have that debate on your own. Michael Jordan is one of the greatest athletes that has ever lived. The, only, the, the reason that scene even makes sense is because he scored 30 points a night over his career, which is ridiculous in basketball. For his career, he averaged 30 points a night. He won six titles in just heroic fashion, okay? If Michael Jordan doesn't do that, there is no movie. <laughs> if, if he's a bust, Matt Damon isn't fawning over him saying, I just want to touch your greatness. That's not, no, because of what Michael Jordan did on the court, right? Because he was great on the court. That's why that scene makes sense. It's not because he's a great person, which if you know about Michael Jordan, he's a jerk. 
I, I, don't, okay, I don't know Michael Jordan, but every person that, like, you just piece together all the stories, he's not a likable person, and maybe I'm a little bitter because not only did he keep the Charlotte Hornets, who I grew up rooting for, from ever making the finals, he ended up buying, buying, he purchased the Charlotte franchise after his career and ran that franchise into the ground. So for 30 years, Michael Jordan ruined basketball for me. But that's not the point. The point is, is that he was great on the court had nothing to do with him as a person. But that's how we understand glory, y'all. We understand glory by the great things that people do. It's the great things that you do that make you glorious. That's how we understand glory. And certainly, God is great because of the things that he has done. But that is not the only reason he is glorious. Down to his very essence and his very being, God is glorious. He's not just glorious because of the things that he's done. He is glorious. He is the epitome of what glory is. And in the English language, the the best catch-all term that we can have is is all the goodness of God, which is wonderful, but that doesn't even capture, because language can't even capture the glory of God. It just can't. He says, I will make my glory who I am, my goodness who I am, pass before you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, which we spent on some time on earlier in Exodus, that even his name is wonderful and glorious because of all the character that flows out of his name. So God is glorious. And he says, and he continues, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but he said, this is the Lord, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. My face shall not be seen. Which? Awesome. We're not spending any time on that this week. That's all next week. So uh, there's a lot of questions that come out of that, a lot of things you want to talk about. That's next week. Okay? So, says that. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cover yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now, that, that right there is sandwiched between some pretty big verses and passages. And you've got to just skip over that and keep going. But that's a big deal what he just said. When he said, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, Moses probably went... Oh, yes, the covenant is going to be restored. That's what he just said. It's been lingering here. Are we going to be able to go in the promised land with you? Are you still going to be our God? Are we still going to be your people? And when he says, cut for yourself two tablets of stone that I'm going to write the Ten Commandments on, whoo, yes, hallelujah. God is with us. He's not going to abandon us. This is good news. Keeps going. Verse 2, be ready. By the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So, very similar to what we saw in Exodus 19. This is a holy moment, a holy event. No one comes to the mountain. No animal comes to the mountain. Nobody. 
Continues. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is when everything he said about hiding him in the cleft of the rock and putting his hand over him, all that's happening right here. And again, it's wonderful. And we're going to spend all our time next week looking at that right there. But for the rest of our time, when God descends by Moses, this is what he says. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time on. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So, God audibly, vocally, describes himself. This is not a prophet speaking on behalf of God. God descends in this powerful moment, and he describes who he is. The Lord, the Lord, his wonderful name, Yahweh. And then it is further described with this description. This is the goodness of God. You want the goodness of God summarized? This is it. I'll make your, my glory and my goodness pass before you. This is the description right here. This is the goodness of God. And this is one of the most powerful statements throughout the Old Testament. This phrasing that God describes himself with is used over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Numbers 14, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, 2 Kings 13, 2 Chronicles verse 30, or chapter 30, Nehemiah 9, all over the Psalms. Psalm 35, 78, 86, 99, 103, 106, 145, Jeremiah 20, Daniel 9, Joel 2, Jonah 4. It is either quoted or alluded to over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So if that is the case, and this is a summary description of the goodness of God, then we should spend some time looking at how wonderful this description of God is. And that's what we want to do. We want to see that the goodness of God and the glory of God is not just a visual experience that Moses gets to be a part of, but it is a description of who he is. It is his character. And it shows really the wide range of God's goodness and his character. And if you were to categorize this in two broad categories, one is the love of God, the fierce love of God. And the second is the justice of God. So let's work through this starting with this first part of the description, which is really the love of God. So the first thing he says is that he's merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious. That is literally on display in the fact that he does not bring judgment upon the people by wiping them out when they reject him for a golden calf at the base of the mountain. He's merciful. He relents. He doesn't bring his judgment upon them. He's merciful. He relents. He's gracious. 
Maybe he gives favors to people that they don't deserve. They don't earn this favor. But he's merciful and he's gracious. One of my favorite parts of the musical Les Mis is the very beginning when uh, the main character, Jean Valjean, this is set in the French Revolution, he gets out of prison. When he gets out of prison, in that period of the French Revolution, he can't get work, starving, He's, he's a social pariah, and he ends up on the doorstep of a bishop in the Catholic Church. And the bishop acts like a Christian, and he takes him into his house. And he gives him a meal. He gives him a bed to sleep in. He takes care of him. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean grabs a bag and grabs as many valuable items in the house as possible, loads it up, steals his stuff, and gets away. Now, he doesn't get very far. Policeman catches him, brings him back to the bishop, knowing where these items came from. And he says, this man says that you gave him these, knowing good and well he stole it. And the bishop looks at Jean Valjean, right from the police officer. And this is what he says. He says, but my friend, you left so early, surely something slipped your mind. And then he goes and he grabs two silver candlesticks. And he gives them to him. He says, you forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? But remember this, my brother, see then this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. And he gives him the silver. He says, take this. Use this. Change your life. And spoiler alert, that's the whole rest of the musical, is him living a better life. And it's such an overwhelmingly beautiful picture of the grace and the mercy of God that he, he stole from him. He stole fine objects, lots of riches. And he says, now take this also. We attempt to steal glory from God all the time. All the time. As prideful human beings. We sin against God all the time. Endless amounts of sin and rebellion, and God, and his mercy, and grace. says, take this also. He gives us himself. He's unbelievably gracious and merciful in spite of our sin. He shows mercy when we don't deserve it. And he gives grace when we don't deserve it. God is unbelievably gracious and merciful. And the next thing he says is he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Now, it's even slower when you understand this and read this wisely, when you understand this theologically, okay? What happens is, is that skeptics, what they'll do is, is they'll say, you know, the Old Testament, your God is just, he's like a, he's like an angry child. Like the people do things, they sin against him, and then he just pours out his wrath immediately. And it's like, you're not, you're not a wise reader of the scriptures, and you certainly don't understand this theologically. Because if you think that God is experiencing their rebellion in real time, you, you have completely misunderstood our God. This is hard for us to picture and imagine, but God created time. So if God created time, and think of the time as this represented by this pen, okay? God created time. He's outside of time, okay? So he's, that means that God existed in eternity past before time, which that breaks our brain and we can't wrap our minds around that. But it's biblically true. He existed in eternity past, okay? He's always existed. And then he operates within time that he's created. 
So when the people of God rebel here at this moment in time, he sees it coming in eternity past. When we rebel in this part of time, God sees it coming way before it happens, and God exists in eternity future, which, again, breaks the brain, and it presents a lot of other questions that I'm not going to resolve for you, but God is slow to anger because he sees a rebellion way before it even happens. And he doesn't destroy us. God is, he's so slow to anger, y'all. He sees it coming and he sees it coming and he's slow and he's patient and he's enduring and he's steadfast. He's so slow to anger. When I think about this in light of my own self, man, I just... For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm just like, I know it. Because <laughs> my children, they do things sometimes. And I'm like, because I'm experiencing it in real time. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm not slow to anger. I'm working on it, but I'm not slow to anger. God is slow to anger. He's so unbelievably slow to anger with impatience as we sin and as we mess up and as we rebel against him. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding, y'all, in steadfast love and faithfulness that we do not deserve. Like, we can't, we can't categorize how rich that is. We don't, have, we don't understand that. Like, I play this game with my kids sometimes uh, when, we, when I put them to bed. And I say, I love you so much. And they say, I love you too. And I say, well, I love you more. And they say, I love you most. And I say, well, I love you mostest. And they're just, I love you times a thousand, times infinity. My kid watched Toy Story. He said, and to infinity and beyond. It's like, nice move, kid. And we do this back and forth because I love my kids. I have steadfast love and faithfulness to my kids. There's only one other person in the world that gets more of my steadfast love and faithfulness, and that's my wife. And then it's my children, and then there's a gap. I just, that, that's, that's what happens. Just, I, I, I have this steadfast love and faithfulness towards my kids, and that right there. And if you're a parent, you understand this. This is even true for friendship. There's, you can have steadfast love and friendship. All of that picture is, is, a, is a poor picture in comparison to the steadfast love of God. You think you love your kids. You, you don't understand the love of God. You don't understand how steadfast and is his love and his richness and kindness and his faithfulness towards us. He's so unbelievably loving towards his people, and it continues, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God forgives his people of their sin and their repentance. He's a forgiving God. He gives second and third and fourth chances all the time. And y'all, we love second chance stories. We eat that up. It's the plot line for so many movies and books. We love the story when somebody gets out of prison and restarts their life. We love the woman who declares bankruptcy and then restarts a business and then it succeeds. We love those stories. And that story, times in infinity, you're getting the picture at this point. God gives us second, third, and fourth chances over and over again. He's so forgiving. He's so unbelievably forgiving of all of our waywardness and rebellion. How, how much of a relief it must have been for Aaron when Moses came down the mountain with two fresh tablets. Just, oh, man. We're in. 
He's not, he's, he's still with us. He still loves us. God is unbelievably forgiving. Now, these descriptions, you can spend sermons on each one of them. They're just wonderful. And as American Westerners, like that's, we like that aspect of the goodness of God. Preach, right? Tell me more of that. The next part we're less comfortable with. And many of us, if we're honest, we wouldn't say this is an aspect of the goodness of God. Because it goes on to say, God says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, that exact phrasing is the same language that we saw in the second commandment when we walked through the second commandment a while back in Exodus. Same, same phrasing. That if you, if you persist in sin, you will by no means clear the guilty. And what's being pictured here is generational sin. And I'll say what I said then, all those months ago. Still true. I think John Piper nails it when he describes this. He describes this right here, generational sin, as like a disease. If your father gets the flu, that does not automatically mean that you're going to get the flu. That's not how that works. Okay? However, if you get the flu, did your chances of getting the flu because you live in the same house rise? Yes. And so it is with generational sin. You grew up in a household where father was abusive and cruel and hurtful, maybe even outwardly religious, went to church every Sunday, but by no means resembles Christ in any Christian sense. And you can grow up in that household and see cruelty, vileness, hate, does that mean automatically that the moment you turn 18, when you bounce out of the house, that you're going to up and leave the church and never come back? No, that's not how that works. Is it more likely? Possibly could be. And you can play this out for any type of sin pattern. But if you are around it enough, inherit some of it, the mystery of this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But you can pick up this generational sin. And that, that literally plays its way out in this story because they're going to wander in the wilderness and they're going to settle into the promised land. Right now, as a church, we're, uh, a, a bunch of us are going through a reading plan, a two-year Bible reading plan. And we're in the book of Judges, which is a pretty painful book to be in because when you're reading the book of Judges, you just see over and over again this playing out. They, they reject God. They worship idols instead. And then they, their kids worship idols. And then their grandkids worship idols. And it's just painful. And by the way, if you want to opt into that reading plan, email me, come talk to me after this. I'll add you to it. You'll be a little bit behind us, but you can join with us. And it's just to help us continually read the Bible together as a church. But you see it all over the book of Judges. You see it all over the people of God. They, they reject God and they worship idols and they pass that on down to the next generation, the next generation. And we just, if we're honest, we don't like this. I mean, you think, I got, how's that good? How's that display the goodness of God? How, how, how is that? I think the reason that we have that heart posture as Westerners 
is because we are largely insulated from absolute injustice. And I'm not saying that injustice doesn't happen in America. I'm not making that argument. It does. But it ain't like it is in the global south. It ain't like it is in other parts of the, of the world. It ain't like it is in other parts of history. It's just not. I mean, we have brothers and sisters in, in, in Nigeria. We have brothers and sisters in the church in Nigeria who in the middle of the night, extremist Islamist groups come in, murder men, kidnap their 13 and 14-year-old girls, do horrible things to them and force them into marriage and then forcibly convert them into Islam. That ain't happening in America. It's just not. You think our Nigerian brothers and sisters aren't looking at this passage and saying, praise God that he doesn't, he by no means clears the guilty. They long for the justice of God. People who experience injustice long for his justice to roll down like a raging river. They want justice to flow. And I think that's a weakness for us as Westerners, a weakness in our assessment of the character of the goodness of God. We need both. We need both the fierce love of God and his fierce justice. We need both. As one commentator puts it on this passage, he says, this makes good sense in light of what would just happen, which was then rejecting God for the golden calf. And it prepares the way for the renewal, renewing of the covenant Furthermore, it indicates that divine love and punishment must be held in balance. It is wrong to give priority to one over the other. So you read that and you are left thinking, okay, but still, like how, how can both of those things be held together? How can God have this steadfast love and mercy and grace and all of that while also not clearing the guilty? Like, how do those meld together? You read the Old Testament, you're like, I I don't know how that works. I'm going to have faith and trust you, but how does that work? And then you flip and you flip and you flip and you flip, and then you get to the Gospels. And where that overlaps perfectly and wonderfully is the cross. That's where the love and the mercy and the grace and his rich forgiveness and his justice flow together. It flows out of the blood of Christ on the cross. That's it. Because God steps into the timeline and says, I'll be the one that accomplishes what I am about. I will be the one that comes and absorbs the wrath that they deserve for being rebels against me. I will be the one that absorbs their sin on the cross. And what I will give to them is love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and the riches of his kindness. The cross is where all of this makes sense. That's where the balance comes together. Colossians 2 13 through 14, and you who were dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's the sinful nature of your flesh, God made alive together with him, heaven forgiven us, all our trespasses. That through the cross, that's what's offered. But it only happens, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. Its legal demand is death for all. The wages of sin is death, 
Romans 6. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is where the fierce love and the fierce justice of God come together beautifully. What God is announcing about himself, the Lord, the Lord, who he is, is most beautifully displayed at the cross of Christ. And when you realize that, pull up a seat at the table. Taste and see that he is good. Take refuge in him. How we open this, that's our our memory verse for the month. The more that you experience Christ like Moses, he's got a taste of God, he's got to experience him, and he's like, I want more of me, show me your glory. And we get to see the glory of God at the cross, and when we pull up a seat at the table to worship him and behold him, we respond like Moses. Moses hears this, and it says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And so do we, brothers and sisters, the more you experience the wonder and the glory of Christ, the more it should lead to worship. You should show me your glory. Show me your goodness. Show me your character. Experience him in his word and in prayer. God, I want a seat at that table. I want you. I want you, God. You should worship and delight in who our God is. Now, There are some of you that have never had a seat at that table. Some of you have never experienced the goodness of our God. You've never experienced his fierce love and his unbelievable justice. And it's offered at the cross. Through faith, you can lay down your life at the cross and say, I want you, Christ. I want to experience your goodness. I want you. I want everything you have to offer And in a moment, I pray that you would do just that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful that thousands of years ago when you declared your character and your goodness, that we get to see that so beautifully displayed at the cross. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not tasted and seen that you are good, that has not trusted in you as their only hope, God, I pray that you would absolutely melt their heart Right now, they would surrender their life to you. And for those of us that love you but struggle with our sin and struggle with understanding your rich love and your mercy and your forgiveness, God, I pray that we'd be able to just respond like Moses, bow our heads and worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt's going to come up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come to the table when you are ready. Jesus took, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. He says, take and eat. Took the cup of the new covenant, and he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. So as Christians, we come to the meal of remembrance, remembering what Jesus did at the cross, remembering his goodness displayed at the cross. So when you've considered your sin, when you've considered our need for God, come joyfully to the table knowing that our God is steadfast in love and rich in mercy and 
grace. Come and worship and then stand and sing. There's gluten-free in that back corner of there if you have a gluten intolerance. If you are not a Christian, please don't come to this table. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Pray and receive the good news of the Savior who came to rescue you.